Well, as we uh, continue this morning, we've actually been in this series. Uh, Most of us have seen this picture before. In 1993, this picture was taken by South African journalist Kevin Carter. And before going viral was a thing, this picture went globally viral during a catastrophic famine in South Sudan. And Kevin Carter ventured into the crisis. He documented this, the heart-crushing reality of what was happening and to give a voice to the voiceless. And somewhat ironically, on his final day, he was rushing to the airport when he came upon this child who was just trying to reach a UN food station about a half mile away. Frail, starving, lying on the ground, stalked by a vulture, and Kevin snapped this picture. And then he continued on to the airport. And with that detail, I don't have to know you to know that that little bit of information has elicited an emotion in you, a question. Anyone want to say out loud what you're wondering or feeling knowing that he snapped this picture and then left this child unattended? Disgust. Yeah. Pay attention to those emotions and feelings, and I'm going to answer that question. It actually, this picture was labeled, uh, it was referred to as a girl. It was actually a boy. The image resulted in a global impact. It drew the world's attention to the humanitarian crisis. He won a Pulitzer Prize for this picture. Though many, as you would expect, criticized him for not doing something specifically to help this child. In other words, people saw this image, found out that he took the picture and left, and the universal feeling and the question is, why didn't you do something? Which reveals something about us, that within us, we can be very different in so many ways, but innately in us, there is a sense of right and not right a sense of wrong, a sense of this is an injustice that needs to be made right. Where does that come from? A short time later, Kevin was being interviewed on a radio station. Someone called in and asked him what happened to the child, and he simply replied, I didn't wait to find out after this shot as I had a flight to catch. To which the caller replied, then I put it to you then that there were two vultures on that day. One had a camera. A few months later, the weight of the crisis and his decision caused Kevin to drive to a park, run a hose from the exhaust pipe into his car, and end his life. There is something in most, if not all of us, that when we see injustice, when we see suffering, it bothers us. Sometimes not enough. But most of us, many of us, have thought to ourselves, why doesn't God do something about whatever it is? You see a natural disaster, you see pandemic disease, you see genocide, you see tyranny, you see racism, maybe someone you love has been the victim of suffering or injustice, maybe assault, maybe sexual assault, and you see or experience evil and injustice, and you're like, where is God in all of that? If there really is an all-good, all-powerful God, why doesn't an all-good, all-powerful God do something 
And so that's what we're going to talk about today as we continue our series, the, the Fundamental List, Recovering the Essentials of Our Faith. And the question that we're attempting to answer is not what, what must you do, but what must you believe to be a faithful follower of Jesus? We talk about the do part all the time here, but what must you believe? What's the irreducible minimum? If you want to be a follower of and not just a believer in Jesus, what's essential and what's not? What's peripheral? What's debatable? What's cultural? What's even maybe heretical? What needs to be abandoned? Because there are things that have been made central that aren't. And as a result, the Christian faith has become untenable for far too many. And they walk away from the church or they walk away from their faith. And so far in building our list, we've identified three things that are core requirements if you and I are determined to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And the first one we said is foundational to all the rest. It is the reference point for everything else, and that is that Jesus is God's Son and our King. And this is the only thing that, that Christians have agreed upon since the time of Jesus. It's the only thing that God sent His Son into the world to be our final, eternal leader, ruler, the one we surrender our lives to and follow. The second fundamental being that Jesus came to illustrate and demonstrate what God is like. This is extremely important. Jesus said, if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at me, the Son. And the third fundamental is that we must define sin as Jesus defines sin. And Jesus defines sin as anything that harms you or harms others. Jesus was very specific about his definition of sin. And following the way of Jesus is to never be harmful to you or to others around you. And today, the fourth fundamental deals with the question, it relates to the question, why doesn't God do something about injustice and suffering in the world? And today, we're going to deal with this universal desire for judgment and justice that when we or someone we love has been hurt or harmed or a victim of injustice or we see others that we feel compassionate towards suffering, hurt, harm, or injustice, we want judgment. We want justice to be done. It's one of the most powerful unifiers in the world. It is very easy to get a group of people rallied around that. In fact, it is easy, easier to rally people against things than it is to rally people for things. And as we've established, when you see something that you are convinced is not right, that conviction assumes that there exists a standard of right. You are by default claiming to know that there exists an ideal and that whatever this thing is that you're making a judgment about, that it falls short of some transcendent standard of right that exists. And th that's true for all of us because we all find ourselves judging things. And at times, and when we do that, what are we doing? We are judging something against our version or our view against what the ideal is of what is right. And there's an irony when it comes to a popular criticism of God, which is to look at the stories of the Old Testament and go, how can you say God is loving or good? I mean, look at some of the atrocities, not just backed by God, but inflicted or commanded by God. And the reason that we feel this way is because when God actually decides to do something about injustice and evil in the world and delivers justice, we don't like it. We judge God. We criticize God. Or at least we question God and what He does. A great example of this would be the flood. Now, some of you may not believe that that 
happened, or you may believe it was a partial or a global flood, or, or, your, or it was just allegory, but whatever, this story is there on purpose, and it's to represent God's judgment in the Old Testament. And if we're honest to us, God's judgment seems harsh. Like, I mean, is there really only one righteous person in the world, Noah? And, and was it really necessary to flood the world, to rid the world of all other people? Why would a good God do that? And yet, when we see injustice in the world, what do we want? We want God to do something. Especially when we or someone we love are victims of injustice. We want justice. Injustice demands justice. But when God does it, we don't like the way he does it. And then the irony, or maybe the hypocrisy, is that we are all for God's justice until he does it to us. Right? Like we want God's judgment, but we want it our way on our terms, and we want it against other people. While ironically, living a life where there are people right now in our past who feel harmed or hurt by us at one point that we acted unjustly towards and shockingly, they kind of wish a bit of judgment and justice on us, don't they? And if you're like me, I'm kind of hoping God doesn't listen to them. So we find ourselves stuck in the middle. We both love and we hate justice, but at the end of the day, come on, we know for the, ever, for the world to ever be right, justice is required. Which means that a God who is not a God of justice is not a good God. And this leads us to our fourth fundamental in what we call the Bible, this collection of amazing inspired documents. In Genesis 4, the third story, the very beginning, is about this very thing. So if you have a Bible or Bible app you'd like to follow along, I'd love that. We'll put the verses on the wall. But to give you some quick context, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are the accounts of creation. The first is more poetic, and the second gives more details of the creation story, though the text is far less about how God created and far more about that God created. And then Genesis chapter 3 is about this ideal existence that existed in the beginning. The serpent tempting Adam and Eve, the eating of the fruit, the cover-up, the hiding from God, the shame, the life-altering loss of the ideal existence. It documents the fall of humanity. And Adam and Eve are driven from this idyllic place God had created for them called the garden. Sin and death officially enter the world, and now things are utterly broken. And that's just three chapters in. And then we get to chapter 4, and we find Adam and Eve starting their family, and they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain is the older one, Abel is the younger one. And the third story in the Bible begins this way. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. So Abel's a shepherd, Cain is a farmer, and both are doing meaningful work by design, which, by the way, work is not a curse of the fall. It may feel that way, but it is not. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And then Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So there's something innate in both of them that says they, they seem to know you need to make sacrifices because they're just like us. You want things to go well for you or for someone 
you care about. You want things to go favorably for you. We all want that. So we see Cain and Abel making sacrifices because they recognize somehow that God is present and that even though things are broken in the world, that somehow the favor of God in this broken world matters, which, which most of us, if not all of us, innately sense as well. And I can prove it. If you or someone you love is facing something life-threatening, what do you do? What do you want others to do? Pray. Like you may not even be a Christian. You may not even remember the last time you prayed. You may have never prayed. But in a struggle or a crisis, it gets hard enough. What do we want? We want God to be involved. In fact, sometimes we try to barter with God. And we promise to make what? Sacrifices. Sacrifices. If God will come through for us. It's just like, God, if you'll intervene, I promise I will start. I promise I will stop. I will never do whatever. Or I'll start going to church every Sunday. I'll give more. I'll volunteer in the kids. Whatever. If you come through, in other words, God, what do I need to sacrifice in order to get you to come through for me? Now with Cain and Abel, it's clear. Abel is giving his first and best. God is and he's making God the priority of his life. He says he brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Abel decides, the first and best of mine, I'm going to give God. God is the priority of my life. But Cain makes a different choice. It says that Cain brought his leftovers. And he keeps the first and the best for himself. Cain decides, the first and the best is for me. I'm going to give to God, but I am the priority. He could get the leftovers. And let's be honest before we get too judgmental of Cain, because that is our tendency. To keep the first and the best for ourselves and give God the leftovers. And I'm not pointing fingers because I'm right there with you. The story goes on. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Abel's attitude and actions invited God's blessings into his life. Cain's attitude and actions did not. And all of us recognize that some sacrifices are more favorable than others in life, like when it comes to your physical health, when it comes to your most important relationships with family, your children, your spouse, how you sacrifice, how you steward your time with things and people who matter most. You sacrifice the wrong things. Things do not go well for you. You sacrifice the right things and things tend to go well for you. Over the years, I have spoken with so many men who have lived with the deep regret of sacrificing their marriage relationships or their relationships with their children. Their children are adults and they don't even want to come home anymore because they made career advancement and making another dollar the priority and they sacrifice those relationships. Or men and women who regret sacrificing their health and quality of life who now face debilitating, even life-threatening health issues because they wouldn't do what was necessary to change their unhealthy eating and fitness and patterns. So we understand this principle of good and bad sacrifices. But Cain doesn't like this. In fact, we're told Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Which, if we're honest, is precisely what happens when we feel judged. Like when we feel judged, we, we feel defensive. And sometimes we want to retaliate and judge them back. And even when someone calls us out and they're right and we're in the wrong. Isn't it interesting that our knee-jerk response is to defend and even deny? I mean, any of you have a family member, maybe a spouse, do not raise your hand, but who in the middle of a disagreement, when it becomes obvious that they are in the wrong, rather than stop right there and admit it, 
they abruptly pivot to another subject matter to keep the fight going. (laughs) Maybe the person who does that is the person you see in the mirror each morning. I'm not trying to meddle. But when we're called out for being wrong, I mean, our tendency is to feel shame and embarrassment, but to admit that we're wrong would be vulnerable. And we don't want to appear vulnerable because that would be weak, especially those of us that are men, and especially when we feel like we're being judged and we don't want to appear weak. So the corresponding emotion to being invulnerable is anger. Shame or embarrassment often presents itself as resentment. This is what is happening to Cain. God comes to him. Why so angry? Why is your face downcast? Look, if you'll do what is right, Will you not be accepted? Which means Cain can still turn things around if he wants it badly enough. And if you do not do what's right, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. He involves the idea of sin, that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you, but you, you must master it. Like any good father would do with his kids, he's trying to help him. He's trying to warn him. He's trying to guide him, trying to point him to to a life-giving direction. God's like, listen, if you don't live in the right way, you need to know you are inviting, personally, personally inviting negative consequences to your doorstep, into your life. In other words, God is clarifying his options, just like God does with every single one of us. He gives us two paths. One path brings life, another brings death and pain. And there's an important subplot, because God's, King's not just angry at God. The sacrifice of his younger brother is judging him. The way that his younger brother Abel is living is a tangible reminder to him that there's an ideal way to live, right decisions, right sacrifices to make, and he is not living it. And Cain experiences just what we experience in the human experience. Like me, you know what it feels like to be in a scenario where somehow you know you should be happy for and celebrate someone else, and maybe you do outwardly, but on the inside... You kind of hate them. I remember a few years ago, several years ago, actually now, I was getting a little squishy, uh, probably after the holidays, and about that time I started playing racquetball three mornings a week, two hours each morning uh, from, with some intense players. Uh, and three months in, I just had my yearly physical, and they weighed me, and I got a surprise. I immediately called my wife after I left the appointment, and I told her, guess what? I have lost 20 pounds in three months dead silence for about five seconds. And then this beautiful woman that I love says to me, I hate you. (laughs) I mean, ladies, you see another woman, maybe it's on social media, maybe you don't, maybe you do. She's your age and she's more fit, her face, she's skinny, whatever, her wardrobe. It's like, and then what she looks like in a swimsuit, even though she's had three children, it's like, you kind of hate her. Why? Do you know her? I don't know her, but I kind of hate her. Or men, if your wife were to rave about how wonderful your friend's, her friend's husband is, and he is, do you celebrate the dude? No. It's like you find all kinds of negative reasons that he appears to be amazing. He probably just does what he does because his wife nags him all the time. And he may be wonderful, whatever, but he's kind of ugly and he doesn't make that much money. <laughs> or when your kids talk about how great their friend's parents are, and they are, by the way. Or when your boss highlights how competent your co-worker is, and they are. 
Or that teacher praises that other student in front of the whole class. I mean, don't you somehow feel that the praise of someone else, especially a peer, at the same time somehow communicates how insufficient, incompetent, or lame you are? And you may be. I don't know. But there's just something in us that says that's just how we feel. We feel judged, and it doesn't feel good. And when that happens, we have two options. The first option is we can be inspired by the comparison that we might think is unfair, but as much as we may not like it, we realize there's something to be learned. Or we can be mad, be angry, and feel judged, and decide to just dislike or hate this other person who we blame for making us feel the way that we're feeling. Cain had a choice, be inspired to do better or be mad. He made a decision. Cain said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out in the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother. And killed him. Cain made his choice. And then some point later, the Lord comes to Cain. Where's your brother Abel? I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? Instead of choosing to course correct and change his approach to God and to others, Cain instead attacks and eliminates the thing that represents the ideal that is judging him because like us, he resents judgment. And when we compare, and when we compare ourselves or we perceive that someone else is comparing us to someone who is more ideal in whatever it is, that category that we're looking at, whether it's intelligence or physical features or personality or temperament or how good of a husband or a wife they are, how good of a parent they are, or a student or employee, whatever it is. What's our nature? Our natural reaction is to try and discredit it or eliminate the judge. Why is that? Because it is easier to tear down and destroy the thing that we're being judged against than it is to pursue it or to humble ourselves and to stretch toward and prioritize the ideal, right? right? Now, most people don't know what happens next in this story, but the second part is extremely important to our fundamental today. God says, listen, the blood, your brother's blood, it cries out to me from the ground, which is just a haunting phrase. He says, now you, you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand, while when you work the ground... It will no longer yield its crops for you, and you'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Now, as haunting as that may sound, I don't think it's enough. Do you? I feel like God's letting him off easy. It's like Cain is getting away with it, doesn't it? I mean, with his bare hands, he murdered his brother, clearly because of the blood, ground receiving his blood. He murdered his brother in a violent, horrifying way, and his consequences are basically... uh, Work's going to be a grind, and you're going to have to move around a lot. That's it. Like, okay, show of hands, for bashing his head in with a stone, or beating or stabbing his younger brother to death, who thinks Cain deserves a harsher punishment than this? Just raise your hands. Just be honest. Okay, and if somebody around you didn't raise their hand, you should be suspicious of them. Okay, so... Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land. I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Maybe God's a little smarter than we give him credit for. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. 
Now, why would God protect Cain, and who is he protecting him from? As to the why, it's partly because of God's grace. Yes, it's extraordinary grace towards Cain. There's also another part of it. It's also so that those, about those who would want to take up the cause of Abel, Abel's family who would be tempted to inflict retribution. I mean, think about it. When murder or injustice happen, when people are discriminated against or people are hurt, especially people that you love, especially if it's family, if somebody does that, what does that provoke in you? Parents, you ever have another child mistreat one of your kids? You ever have one of your siblings get bullied by someone else? What does that provoke in us? It provokes like, I can make their life miserable, but you cannot. It provokes revenge. It causes us to want to do something, to get back, to avenge, to revenge. And avenge the people that we love. Injustice requires justice. And Abel has a family, and they're going to be tempted to go after Cain. And that's just the natural, normal response in the broken, fallen world that we live in. And yet a society that accepts or tolerates, tolerates retribution in which anybody and everyone can just take justice into their own hands, however they define justice, it destroys people. It destroys culture. It destroys society. In fact, playing judge and taking justice into their own hands would have made Abel's family just like Cain, who decided to play judge and take justice in his own hands as he defined justice. And the role of a just judge is just too much for any one of us to bear. It's why in our society we have juries, but even in that, if you've ever had the chance to talk to someone who's been on a jury for a difficult trial, like a murder or something, where you're going to significantly decide somebody's future, when you are in a position to exact justice, but you're not 100% sure what the answer is, when you talk to these people, they talk about how they wrestle and struggle and they lose sleep. Why? Because you and I weren't designed for this. You weren't designed to be a just, perfect, and final judge of anything, which is shown by the fact that we're just not good at it. I mean, think about it. Think about how many times you have prejudged or misjudged somebody or something unjustly. Once my sons got the past of the age where they could really be punished, uh, they shared with me times when one of their brothers got punished by me or their mom for something that actually they did. <laughs> they were the perpetrator. I, I have had the blessing of actually seeing my adult sons apologize to one another for things that they did when they were young that resulted in their brother being wrongly punished by mom or dad, which shows that even with the people that we live with day in and day out, we're just not good at being a just judge. We, we are too quick to judge. We judge incorrectly. We misjudge. We almost always lack a full picture, and we absolutely lack the perspective and the understanding of the God of time, space, matter, and life, right? As humans, one of the things, and I talk about this often, is our natural inclination is the fundamental attribution error. It is the tendency of every one of us to attribute the negative people, the negative behavior of other people to their personality or their disposition while attributing our own same poor behavior 
to our situation or circumstances. If you yell at your kids, you're just a bad parent. If I yell at my kids, you don't know the eight things they did before that moment. So God intervenes. Despite the appalling crime of Cain towards his brother, no one's going to be allowed to seek retribution against Cain, even though Cain continues the rest of his life to disregard and resist God in his life. One of Cain's descendants also commits murder. He kills a young man for what he says, for wounding or injuring him. We don't even know what that means. And he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. And generations later, a descendant of Cain is credited with creating weapons of war. Things are just out of control and destructive in this lineage of the family. Anybody know what the next story is in the book of Genesis? The flood. So just a few chapters into the Bible, the ideal world is created. It's referred to as the garden where God and humans are in harmony and humans and humans are in harmony with one another. It's described as paradise, an ideal world, the ideal world where humankind is given only one rule. And at the core of it is this rule, core of the rule is trust me. I am God and I am for you. And I'm giving you only one rule, and that one rule is to protect you. It's to protect one another. It's to protect your entire existence. It's to protect the generations that are going to follow you. But like we so often do, they conclude God is not as smart as I am. In fact, it appeared to them that God was holding out on them, like sometimes we feel like God is holding out on us. So they chose to not trust God and to break the one rule. And as a result, the ideal is lost. Pain, suffering, and injustice enter the world. The world and humanity are fractured. The relationship between God and humans is fractured. Things stop going well in the world, and ever since... The world has been filled with some of the most heinous injustices and evils imaginable. And we want to know, God, why aren't you doing something about this? When are you going to do something about this? And the good news is, Jesus promised there is going to be a final judgment for this. He has promised that there will be the final judgment for every single wrong evil and injustice from the beginning of time, that he gets the final say. In fact, he tells us in John chapter 5, he says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Now, we don't know exactly how that's going to work. In in the Gospels, Jesus gives us many parables to try and give us a picture of it. And in the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is terrifying at points, but it's true, Jesus and John, they're trying to describe heavenly and spiritual things limited with the tools of what they have, earthly and physical examples. But one thing is indisputable. Jesus promises a final judgment. The details, the sequence, it's not fully clear, but here is what is clear, that there will be a judgment at the end. And when this happens, that the things of the kingdom of heaven and the things of the kingdom of the enemy and his fiefdom, the things are of hell, it will once and for all be utterly separated. And somehow, and this is the part, to be honest, it's just, It's just beyond our comprehension. But there are a lot of things in life that are currently beyond our comprehension. Just because it's beyond our comprehension doesn't make it not true. But that somehow, some point in the future, it could be two minutes from now, it could be decades from now. We don't know, but we are promised that somehow every single wrong, 
injustice and evil. Every single wrong, injustice, and evil from the very beginning of humanity to the final moment of humanity will somehow, it will all be made right. And for those who prior to that final moment put their faith and their trust in God's final eternal King Jesus, something we have all desperately longed for, even though we may not have language for it, has been promised. And in a sense, it's a return to the garden. The Apostle John records for us in the book of Revelation a vision that God gave him as an old man. It is one of my favorite passages for the New Testament. God shows John what will happen for those who have put their trust in God's final king. And I, John, heard a loud voice from God's throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. No more separation anymore. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Why? Because the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I am restoring it all. And then he said, write this down for these words. They are trustworthy and they are true. And I don't know about you, but that day cannot come soon enough for me. And to know that somehow our Heavenly Father, who transcends space and time, who created the universe, who knows every single one of us by name, that in His infinite power and goodness and trustworthiness, He will right every single wrong from the beginning of time. Which gives us our fourth fundamental for what someone must believe in order to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And that is that Jesus promises justice in the end. And he invites us to trust him in the meantime. That in the end, somehow, perfect and complete justice will be served. All will be made right. But in the meantime, while we wait for that final day, he says, will you trust me? Will you trust me for how to live this life in this life the proper way? toward yourself, towards others in this broken world. Like Cain and Abel, you and I have a choice between this side of the cross and that final moment. And Jesus promises that the best possible way for things to go well for you, go favorably for you in this life and the next is to follow him, to trust him, to live in light of this promise. From the beginning until now, there remains an enemy who is relentless in his mission to steal kill and destroy anything and everything good and hopeful in this world and in your individual world. He knows he's going to lose, but as we've even seen on the human level, whether it's murder-suicide or mass murder-suicide, like just take myself out and everybody with me, the enemy Satan is determined to wreak as much destruction and to take as many down with him as possible before the final judgment. He remains the relentless enemy of God and of humanity, of you, the people you love, and your family. Those young ones are going to be baptized this morning. He is relentlessly trying to convince us God is not trustworthy, that we should put our trust in ourselves, to put ourselves first in every situation. He is tempting us to not trust Christ in the way that we live, the way Jesus has asked and commanded us to live. He is causing us, he is tempting us every day to trust in our own ability to handle our lives 
But Jesus is asking you and calling me and you to trust him, to live our lives the way he has called us to live so that we invite the favor of heaven down into our lives rather than bring hell up into our lives from the choices that we ourselves make. Many of us have experienced bringing hellish circumstances into our own lives from decisions that we made, words we chose to speak, actions we chose to act out on, the selfish appetites and desires we gave into. But Jesus calls us to trust him. And when it comes to all the wrongs and injustice we, injustices we experience in this life, to trust him to be the good and perfect final judge who will bring ultimate justice. Because God instead of exacting his justice on the world and humanity when the world and humanity deserved it, he has delayed it. Because what we need to understand is humanity has never truly received what we fully deserve. That's why Paul, writing to Christians in Rome, says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? He, demonst- he did this to demonstrate his righteousness Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness in the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So fundamental number four is Jesus promises justice in the end. And he invites us to trust him in the meantime. I'm going to pray for us. And then we will, we're going to transition into the exciting moment of the morning, the baptisms. Let me pray for us. Father, every one of us in this room, we have faced, we are facing points of tension, points of struggle in our own lives and lives of people that we love. We see the darkness and brokenness throughout this world, the division, the divisiveness, the the seeming inability to ever see eye to eye to accomplish something good and worthy. And Father, I pray for us that you would unite us and also that you would give us peace, Father, recognizing that in the end you will make things right. But I pray for every single one of us that in the meantime, that part of our trust in you is following you, is that we would resist evil. We would resist injustice. We would resist the harm to other people and the marginalization of people. And that we would live as a light in this broken world. We can't do it without your help. So lead us, guide us, and give us the peace that we need to trust you in the meantime. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.